Welcome to the Rehope Belfast podcast. We're so glad you're taking the time to listen to the message from Sunday. May this message be a blessing to you today. In, um, in our front room, we set up our Christmas tree this week. Um, felt really early, but we thought we'll go for it, right? My kids are super hyped for Christmas. And, um, but the problem is with our tree is that the tree is in the corner. If you've been in our front room, we've got two sofas and then the tree is kind of angled into the corner of the, of the room, but the plug is tucked away in the corner. So in order to turn the lights on and off, uh, you'd kind of have to crawl underneath the sofa, get right up underneath where the tree is and like stretch your hand around to turn it on. So I had this moment of dilemma. I was like, right, what do we do? Put an extension cord. Like, what? I'm just trying to work it out. And then I had a moment of genius, which I'm kind of uh, regretting, is that I got a, uh, a Wi-Fi plug, which is connected to our Alexa. And so I plugged the trees into the Wi-Fi plug, which seems genius, right? So then you just have to go, Alexa, Christmas lights on. And the tree lights come on. Genius. Yeah, really good. So then you just speak to it and it turns on. The problem is I've got a six-year-old and a three-year-old and they take great joy at walking in and just going, Alexa, lights on, Alexa, lights off. And then the lights are just having this party and I'm going, you're going to blow the bulbs and the tree. Like, so anyway, moment of genius into moment of panic. But the, the thing is, I, and I, I did this yesterday with my daughter. We went down early in the morning and she went to turn on the lights in the front room and I said, no, no, don't turn the lights on. Let's just walk in in the darkness and I said, why don't you tell Alexa to turn the lights on? And so she went, Alexa, lights on. And the Christmas tree lights goes, Pah, and came on. And it just, you know, it's one of those moments where you know, like we're in complete darkness. And then the lights on the tree just came on as if by magic. The Alexa elves went to work and turned on the tree lights. But this is the beautiful thing about Christmas. As Desmond Tudu says, hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. The days that we are living in can seem chaotic and filled with darkness. There is so much going on, maybe in your personal lives, in the lives of this city, in the lives of the world right now, where there can, it can leave us void of any sense of hope. We've just gone through uh, all that was going on in Glasgow in relation to the climate crisis, and you read anything around that, and you just go, where is the hope? You think of what's going on with COVID right now and the rise in infection rates and all that kind of stuff, countries going into further lockdown. Where is the hope? Like We can just get so lost in a sense of hopelessness. Maybe a series of disappointments have left you feeling shattered. And it's in that place that you can find that the darkness can creep into your mind, can creep into your heart, and can creep into your soul. And where you then look out on the world, you then think to yourself, where is the hope? And it can leave you filled with anxiety, with fear, depression, a sense of hopelessness. But I want us to see today in this short time that I'm going to speak, is that as Desmond Tutu says, that hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. There's a scripture I want to read from us, read to us. This is part of Paul's letter to Rome. And we read it in Romans 5. I'm going to read it from verse 1. I think it will come on the screen. But Paul says in his letter, he says these words, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. 
And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Proven character produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Despite all of the afflictions, Paul says, there is hope. Why? And I love the line. It says, this hope, this is the hope that comes from being filled up with the Holy Spirit, filled up with the hope and the joy of the Lord. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so the question I want to begin this morning with is where in this season of Advent, which is a season of waiting, a season of anticipation, it's a season of longing, where in this season of Advent Have you placed your hope? Have you made a Christmas list? Sent it off to Santa in hope that you're going to receive those presents under the tree? Where is your hope? And what does your hope lie? In whom does your hope lie? How disappointed will you be if you don't get that gift that you've asked your loved one for? Is that where your hope is found? Perhaps you've been longing to go on that holiday that you've been just desperate for, that promotion at work, maybe passing exams, that significant other going to ask you to marry them this Christmas season. We each have things that we maybe hope for and we're longing for and we're desperate for, but each of them, and this is the, the thing we always need to get our heads around when we think and hope for anything, is that those things that we hope for, they have the real possibility of letting us down. The things that we hope for, the things that we long for, they have the potential of letting us down. We have the feeling of emptiness when, the, when we don't pass that exam. And we were hoping that we would get it, but we didn't. We were hoping that we'd get that job, we'd get that promotion, but then it doesn't come. We were hoping that that significant other would get down on one knee and ask us that question at Christmas time in front of the Christmas tree. And you had it all planned out in your mind and then it doesn't happen. You're hoping, I'm hoping that I get to go back to my family's house for Christmas this year. But it has the real potential of not happening. A disappointment could creep in. You see, but the hope that is found in God is a hope that won't disappoint. This is what Paul says. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so what we need to grasp in this Christmas season Is that for all the external things that we hope for, all the longings in our hearts for the perfect Christmas, for the gift under the tree, for whatever it is that you are hoping and longing for, those things have the very real possibility of disappointing us. But the hope that is found in God is a hope that will never disappoint. It's a hope that will never spoil or fade. It's a hope that will never diminish. No matter how much darkness there is in the world, it is a hope that is a light that can extinguish the darkness. But here's the thing, and here's a hard truth. Hopelessness and that feeling of disappointment, that feeling of unmet longings, hopelessness is a weapon that the enemy uses effectively against us. Hopelessness is a weapon that the enemy uses effectively against us. Who is the enemy? What am I talking about in that moment? I'm talking about the spiritual battle, where our battle in this moment is not against flesh and blood, but a battle is, is against spiritual forces even in the heavenly realms. And so what is that? We're talking about the devil. We're talking about lies. We're talking about deceptive thoughts and ideas that play havoc to our thinking. They play havoc to our souls. They play havoc over our minds. So when disappointment comes, 
when hopelessness comes. This is a weapon that the enemy uses effectively against us. And perhaps this morning you are sat there right now in a place of hopelessness. Maybe it is your own mental health. Maybe it is that job, to, you know, your job prospects. Maybe it is whatever it is, fill in the blank for you. But that is something that the enemy, that sense of hopelessness, is a weapon that the enemy will use effectively against us. It will begin to make us question our identity, question our thoughts of worth and value, question who we are on this earth. Because to be hopeless means that you can feel dejected, despairing, despondent, desperate, perhaps absence of dreams for the future, a feeling, feeling of futility, and hopelessness is when you come to that place where you have, have come to an end of yourself and you don't know where to turn next. But hopelessness is a weapon that the enemy uses effectively against us. Yay! <laughs> if you weren't feeling hopeless, maybe you do now. But I want to say, and this is where we're going to go now, is that there is good news. That this candle, the light in this darkness, is there as a hope for every single one of us. That where we are feeling hopeless, there is hope. I want to look at a story in Scripture. And this comes right at the, at the beginning of the whole of the Christmas narrative. And this is the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth which we find in Luke's gospel, starting at chapter one. I'm gonna read through this and help us to understand in the next few moments where there is hope despite all of the darkness. So in the days of King Herod, we read in verse five, there was a priest in Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord, but they had no children. Because Elizabeth could not conceive and both of them were well along in years. What I want us to see as we go through this scripture is that God is at work in the darkness. That where there is darkness in society, where there is darkness in our own lives, God is at work in the midst of that. The culture that these guys are operating in was filled with a deep Darkness is a culture that was not upholding God as sovereign and as king. It was a culture that was following after the idols of the day. It was a culture that had rejected any notion of there being a God. It sounds familiar to today, right? But in this moment, we see that God is at work in ways that are, not, that are not immediately apparent. God is at work in ways that are not immediately apparent. A few things that we see from the story, we can go and and a lot of depth around this. I'm going to jump through a few of these pieces. We see that Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful to God. The text tells us that they were righteous and they were living without blame. But we also see that Zechariah and Elizabeth had this irreversible disappointment in their lives. The text tells us that Elizabeth didn't have any children because she, was having, that she couldn't conceive. And the very fact that Luke, who was a doctor, who used a lot of descriptive language, he liked to put in details in his gospel. In his writings, he was very methodical in what he included. And so every single detail is there for a reason. And we see that this moment where it says that Elizabeth could not conceive, that she was barren, it's important in this story. And we'll come on to see why in a moment. But barrenness in this culture was considered a sign of God's disfavor and God's punishment. And so this couple, they lived with the shame. Remember, Zechariah is a priest in the house of God. He's a priest in the temple. 
but they live with this shame that many others around them would have looked upon them and considered that the fact that they could not conceive children, they must have been living in a secret sin. They must have been carrying around sin that was not held accountable before God. And so other priests, other people in their culture were looking upon them and going, well, there must be a reason why. And the reason why that they can't conceive children is because God is punishing them. And so they were walking around in this culture which saw their barrenness as a place of punishment. And so they're walking around with a hopelessness. This couple, they're living in a culture where there is a deep darkness and hopelessness over the lands, but within their own lives, there is a deep darkness and hopelessness. And the challenge that we're going to see just in the next few minutes, we're going to run through this really quickly, is that in the life of Elizabeth and Zechariah, they continue to serve, they continue to wait on the Lord, but they didn't allow their hopelessness of their situation, where the longing of their hearts was not met, to define who they were. They continue to faithfully serve God. Now, within the culture, Zechariah could have exonerated himself by divorcing Elizabeth for her barrenness, and this, was an, this would have been seen in that culture at that day an acceptable grounds for divorce. He could have gone off, found a younger woman who could, who could have you know, cons, you know, had children, and then you know, the curse, the, 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 the looks of, of others who saw him as one who was filled with sin, that could have been gone in a moment. But he decided to stay faithful to Elizabeth. He continued on in his priestly duties, and he continued on being faithful towards his wife, Elizabeth. But then one day, as he was fulfilling his duties as a priest, something incredible happened. Verse 8 we read, when his division was on duty, now priests were broken up into divisions, and they would have, there would have been a roster of who was on on what days, and what, you know, what what priestly crew would have been on. So this is Zechariah's crew, right? They got called up on this day to be the ones who were on duty. He was serving as priest before God. And it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. So on the day that, you know, the, the crew who was on that day, the work crew, the priests would have come into the temple courts and they'd have drawn lots. Have, you know, let's just imagine they take straws. And whoever gets the shortest straw in that moment will be the one who goes into the temple to burn the incense. This is a special moment. And so it happened that he, Zechariah, was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and to burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. So we get this picture of the temple courts filled with people praying. Zechariah and his priestly crew have gone into the temple. Zechariah has now gone into, not the Holy of Holies, but he's gone into the next step of the temple courts. And he's been the one chosen to go and light the incense. Now this moment was, was not, like, like we can read past this, we can brush past this and go, well that's what's happening, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. But actually this moment, Zechariah is not performing normal priestly duties. He's going above and beyond. He's doing something which is special and significant. Now remember, in this culture, in this day, in this moment, there was one temple, but there were thousands of priests. The ancient historian Josephus estimates, and this is an estimate, it's probably on the low side, that there are around 20,000 priests who served in that temple. 20,000 me. <laughs> 20,000 priests, right, who had served in that temple. Now, in that moment, it's Zechariah's crew, maybe about 10 of them, who've now, it's their day, they're on the rotor, they've gone into the temple, they've then drawn lots. Zechariah is the one who pulls out, say, the shortest straw. He's the one chosen to go and light the incense. This assignment that he's on is of special significance. 
But also we can't brush past at this moment where Zechariah finds himself. Although this would have happened every day and every night, so in the morning and in the evening, someone would have had the choice, would have been chosen by Lot to go and light the incense. But in the course of this routine activity, it's Zechariah who is the one who is chosen in this moment to go into the temple courts to light the incense. This is a unique moment. And then we read on, verse, eight, verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. So our boy Zechariah, he's gone into the temple, he's lit the incense, and now an angel appears. Now again, we can brush past this, but notice, this is the first moment in 400 years that the divine breaks into humanity. 400 years of silence had fallen between Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and this moment. This is the first moment that we get a mention of a word from a heavenly being towards a human. For over 400 years. No angelic visitations. For generations and generations, God had remained silent. And the reaction that Zechariah has is one that is coherent with all the other visitations that we read in scripture from an angel or divine being to a human. He is overcome with fear. But also remember, 400 years, generations, it's not like his dad told him a story one day, sat him down and goes, oh son, one day an angel visited me and this is how I reacted. He's got no like generational line where this has happened. He's had no stories passed down, generations of silence. And so this is a moment in time, just like with Joseph, who is visited by an angel and he's told not to be afraid. Just like the shepherds that we'll see later on in the story of Christmas, where the shepherds are on the hillside. And what do the angels do? They say, do not be afraid. Every time there's a visitation from the angelic host, people are terrified. They're petrified. And so this moment in time, where the majesty of the divine breaks into the mundane of humanity, where there's an invasion of eternity into time, we see that the mystery of the heavens comes and meets this priest whilst he is engaging in a mundane, day-to-day ritual, that he is the one who has been chosen by a lot to step into that place to do this. And we read that Zechariah was afraid. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many people rejoice at his birth. Zechariah, despite his pain, his disappointments, his potential lack of hope, he committed the situation to the one who could do something about it, and he prays. And his prayers have been answered. But notice for a moment, because your mind has probably drifted to where my mind drifted as I read this text. Because the text doesn't actually tell us what he had been praying for and what the prayer, the specific prayer that had been answered. When reading through the text, we can think, well, his prayer for a son, for a child, has been answered. That, that, that's oftentimes our immediate response to when we read a text like this. Well, he, he's, you know, we've read in the text that his wife could not conceive, and now the angel has visited and he's been given a son. The text doesn't actually tell us this. And so I was thinking about, like, wonder what was the prayer that had been prayed? What is actually happening in this moment that the angel has visited and said, your prayers are now being answered? You see, many scholars, as I was studying this, many scholars actually believe that the prayers that have been prayed by Zechariah and Elizabeth are not for a son because they'd come to a place of peace about not needing a son. They'd come to a place of peace understanding that they were kind of 
pastor in their years for receiving a son. That's why Zechariah was off and you know, he stayed married. He stayed faithful to Elizabeth. They were at peace about it. He'd continued in his job as a priest because he, was, he still continued to believe that God was faithful. And so he hadn't given up in his faith. He continued on in faith, believing that despite the disappointments that are in his life to do with his own personal life, he felt that he could continue doing that because he still trusted in God. And so he, the question is, is were they praying for, this, for a son or were they actually praying for something bigger? Many scholars believe that actually the prayer that was answered was the prayer that Zechariah and Elizabeth had was for the healing of the lands, was for a restoration of all that was broken, that the prayers were way bigger than just for themselves. Their prayers were for the healing and the restoration of God's shalom, God's peace, God's wholeness to come where there was brokenness and where the culture was in deep darkness, that they were praying for a light to be shone into the darkest of places. They were praying for a great reawakening And these were the desperate cries of their hearts. And the angel turns up before him with saying that these prayers that you've been praying are being answered in this moment for the hope in the darkness to be overturned, for the light to come, I have an answer. And the answer is not what you were expecting. So let's read on in the story. Verse 15, for he, John, it doesn't say John, but for he, that's who they're talking to, John, will be great in the sight of the Lord. This is their son. And will never drink wine or beer. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him, that's Jesus. He'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Notice here that what the angel is declaring over Zechariah, he's talking about the coming of hope. He's talking about the arrival of hope. That he's making way, he's setting the stage for the arrival of Jesus. Notice Zechariah's response. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Elizabeth and Zechariah in this moment, they question God's timing. They question God's like, movement in this moment. Like, what are you, like, do you not know how old we are? Like, what is going on? It doesn't appear in this moment that Zechariah is overcome with joy. He's hardly bowing down in worship. He's hardly running around like the temple courts going, guess what, my prayers have been out. Like he's not overcome with joy. Rather, he questions, how can I know this? You know, one of the hardest things in our lives, when we think about the prayers that we pray, is the gap between the prayer that's prayed and the answer. And what to do in the midst of that. Where we pray for breakthrough, perhaps for years and we wait for the answer. Where we're praying for a situation and we wait for the, in the middle, that wait is so hard. And when the answer finally comes, which is what happens here with Zechariah, his first posture is not that of worship. His first posture is that of, huh? How can I know? He's wanting to know how this is going to come about. And what do we do when God answers the prayers that we pray and he answers them in a way that we were not expecting? The angel answered him, I am Gabriel 
who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. This is, again, it's highly significant. Gabriel stands before Zechariah. He declares that I have been sent to speak to you, to tell you this good news. He, Gabriel, was on a divine appointment. Remember, Gabriel in this moment is breaking those 400 years of silence. And I think that God often waits until things are humanly impossible, and then he does what only he can do. God used Zechariah and Elizabeth's lifelong disappointment to call people back to him. He used their disappointment of not having a child, of of being in that hopeless place of situation where they were in a culture that was far from God. They were in a culture that had turned their backs on God. They were in a culture that was worshipping idols and was issuing decrees that God was not who he was. And he used their own brokenness, their own desperate hearts, their cries for a son that had gone unmet for years. But now their prayers had shifted to praying for a revelation of God's goodness over the lands. And in this moment, God's used Zechariah and Elizabeth's long, lifelong disappointment to call people back to him. Through the gift of a son to a man and a woman who were not expecting this, but use their disappointment, their brokenness, their cries over the lands to be healed. To see that they, their son would make ready, make way the path for the coming of Jesus. God often puts us in hopeless disappointments, hopeless situations, so that we will put our whole trust in him. I spoke on that a few weeks ago. And so as we close this morning, let me ask you again, where or who or what are you placing your hope in this Christmas? Is it that certain present? That food? A good bit of rest and break? Time with family? Maybe you're hoping that family goes well and doesn't end up in a big argument. Maybe you're hoping for whatever it is that you're hoping for. But is your hope in something greater, something different, something beyond yourself? Just like we see with Zechariah and Elizabeth, that maybe their prayers were for a bigger restoration of the lands, for a culture that they were in filled with darkness and hopelessness, and where their own personal situations were filled with darkness and hopelessness. But yet we see that the hope that is in God is a hope that does not disappoint. That there are so many things in our lives that will disappoint us, but the hope, as we read in Romans, The hope that is in God is a hope that will not disappoint us. However, hopelessness is a weapon that the enemy will use effectively against us to cripple us, to make us feel things that aren't of God, to make us feel unworthy, unloved. And so we need to put our hope, our trust, our longings in God, knowing that God is at work in ways that aren't always immediately apparent. And that in our place of waiting, God often uses things. God often waits until things are humanly impossible 
where we can't do things in our own strength. And then he steps in and does what only he can do. And that's to bring hope and light into the darkness. And so I end with a quote that I started with this morning from Desmond Tutu. And this is where our gaze and our eyes need to be fixed somewhere differently. Because hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. Despite all of the darkness that is around us in our world, in our own lives, that there is light. And that's what I want to pray for right now. That we would see that Jesus is the light of the world. That as he comes into the midst of a culture that is filled with darkness, which is where the story in Luke continues on as we see the arrival of Jesus, that there is hope. And his name is Jesus, God's one and only son, came into the world for you and for me as but a vulnerable babe. And he comes to save and he comes to set us free. And it's in him that there is hope. Okay, let's pray.